Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please join me now in prayer. Let's pray. And Father, now as we have heard your word being publicly read, and now as we ask for you to speak to us in the preaching of the word, will you humble us and prepare us for whatever it is you want us to learn today? Thank you that you guide us with the guiding light of your scriptures, the scriptures that are living and breathing, that is able to speak into our lives, that is able to illuminate who we are and remind us of our identity. God, would you please empower us by the grace of your spirit who is at work within us so that what we hear today would be applied in our lives so that we would live differently, that we would live courageously, that we would live faithfully before a watching world. Father, we thank you for this community that you have given to us known as NCF. We thank you for the bonds of family love that you are developing among us. But most importantly, we thank you for the love of the Father that you have made accessible to us through the great work of the cross. Oh, Lord, now, would you now speak to your people. Bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, folks, just in case you weren't aware, I'm a pastor. I'm a minister. You know, I'm an official rev, reverend, R-E-V. And in my line of work, I meet lots of other ministers. Uh, typically, I get to meet a lot of pastors in my line of work and their families. Uh, sometimes I meet pastors who are, excuse me, much older than I am, and I meet their children who are much older than my children. And whenever I meet a pastor's family in particular, I always like to target one particular person within that family. I always like to go after one of the sons, typically the oldest son, and I always go up to that boy or young man and I say, hey, young man. Do you ever want to follow your dad in his profession? Do you ever want to be a pastor like your dad? And almost 99% of the time, their response is, heck no. Sometimes they use another H word just to really emphasize how much they don't want to follow their dad's footsteps vocationally. And I'll ask, why not? You know, I mean, don't you appreciate what your father does and, and so forth? And to which most of them respond, well, yeah, I do. You know, but you know what? I just don't feel called to do ministry. That's the typical response I get. I, I, I don't want to be a pastor like my father because I don't feel called to do ministry. And, of course, me being a little bit of the jerk that I am, I like to respond by saying, oh, you don't feel called to do ministry, so you're not a Christian. Oh, how long have you been a non-Christian? And that always shocks them. They're like, what? What are you talking about, man? Of course I'm a Christian. I just don't feel called to do ministry, to which then I respond. That's like saying that you're an athlete, but you're not called to play any sports. We're continuing a new sermon series that we kicked off last week entitled Mets. And no, this is not a sermon series of the best baseball team in the whole world. It's actually an acronym, Mets, which stands for Members Equipped to Serve, M-E-T-S, Mets. And the whole point of this series is to look at the five crucial ministries that God calls every Christian to serve as a minister. You see, the Bible tells us that it's not only ordained ministers like myself who are called to do ministry. No, God calls every person who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, every Christian, to minister, particularly a minister in five crucial ministries. First, there is the ministry, the personal ministry we have to God, which we're going to talk about today. 
Then in a couple of weeks, we're going to look at the ministry that God calls us to serve in the church, the local church. Then we're going to look at the ministry that God calls us to serve in our family. Then there's the ministry that we have to the world through our work, our vocation. And then finally, the fifth ministry that God calls us to do is the ministry that we have to the world by serving the poor, freeing the oppressed, and doing works of justice. So, let's start off today by looking at the first ministry God has called all of us to minister in, and that is our personal ministry to God. Three things I want to share with you this morning. First, I want to talk about what our personal ministry to God is. Then I want to talk about why this personal ministry to God is so important to God. And finally, I want to end it with how we can have this personal ministry to God. What it is, why it's so important to God, and how to get it. Okay, let's jump right in. First, what personal ministry to God is. Now, if you grew up going to church and you hear the phrase personal ministry, you may think that that phrase is simply referring to a ministry in the local church that you personally participate in because you have a personal interest in it or you have a personal burden for it. So, for example, let's say some of you are musically talented. You're very musically gifted. And so you see the praise team. There's an opening here. By the way, we do need another drummer. So if you're good at drums, come join us, right? But typically when you think, hey, I have a personal proclivity to good music and I want to join the praise team. And so we tend to think that if you join the praise team, that that is your personal ministry. Or let's say that you are a parent of a young toddler and you want to make sure that your child is well taken care of and well taught so you volunteer in the toddler ministry. You may think that that participation is your personal ministry, right? Typically we understand the phrase personal ministry as meaning the ministry program that we participate in in the church because we have a personal vested interest in it. But that's not how the Bible understands the concept of personal ministry to God. So let's take a look at our passage so you can see What I mean by that. So here in this verse that we're studying today in Matthew 7, Jesus is describing a future event that will happen at the end of time that is sometimes referred to as judgment day. Take a look at verse 22. You see that phrase, on that day? All New Testament scholars agree what day Jesus is specifically referring to. He's referring to the day of judgment. When the end of the world, he's going to gather everyone that has ever lived and judge them. This is sometimes known as the apocalypse You know, the apocalypse. You know, it's so funny. Whenever you see Hollywood's portrayal of the apocalypse, it's always portrayed as some sort of major cataclysmic event where cities are ruined and the whole planet is in devastated, destructive ruins, you know, as if the apocalypse is nothing more than just a day of utter reckoning and utter destruction. That's the only thing that the apocalypse is about. No. No, no, no. That is not true. The whole point of the apocalypse, according to the Bible is simply to reveal something that was hidden before. The apocalypse essentially means it's the day when God is going to reveal something that was hidden before. By the way, that's what the word apocalypse literally means. It means to reveal something, to unravel something, to bring out to the open that was hidden before or was in darkness before, okay? And here in our passage, Jesus is describing exactly what he's going to reveal on the day of the apocalypse, which is he is going to reveal those whom he knows and those whom he does not know. The day of the apocalypse, judgment day, is the day where God is going to reveal those whom he knows and those who he does not know. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. By me saying he's going to reveal to some people that he doesn't know them, does not imply that there are some people who walk on this earth that are complete strangers to God, as if he doesn't know who they are and he has no idea where they came from, 
Okay? Psalm chapter 24, verse 1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all the people belong to him. According to this passage and all other passages of the Bible, God is the creator of all, which means he knows every single individual who's ever walked on this earth because he made them. He knows them in such intricate detail. He knows them better than they could ever know themselves. He knows every single person intimately, exhaustively, okay? But that doesn't mean everyone else returns the favor. Because when Jesus is describing the apocalypse here, when he says that he is going to judge some people where he will say, I don't know you, He's not saying literally, I don't know who you are. What he's saying is, you don't know me. Think of it this way. Let's say you have a person who says that he personally knows who Peyton Manning is. All right? Let's just say there's this crazy dude, this deranged fan. who says, I know Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning and I are like this. We are best buds. You know, we do long holidays together. You know, we sit in the hot tub and we drink beer. And we, we're just like this. All right? And he goes on and on about this. I know Peyton Manning. And then someday a reporter catches up on this and he asks Peyton Manning in an interview, hey, do you know so-and-so, the guy who claims to know you? To which Peyton Manning then responds, I don't know who he is. What is Peyton Manning saying at that moment when he says, I don't know him? He's saying that this guy who claims to know him doesn't know him at all. There's no relationship. There's no intimacy. There's no connection whatsoever, right? And sure enough, there are many people today in the, to claim God knows them, which is really their way of saying that they know God, when in fact they don't know anything about God. They have no intimate relationship. They have no genuine connection. They have no fellowship whatsoever. And we're not talking about some deranged people who are like deluded sports fan who think they're best buds with a celebrity athlete. No, we're talking about people who on the outside sound and talk and look like the real deal. These are people who on the outside look like they would be Uber Christians, like the major Christians, right? The Jesus fish Christians, apparently, you know? The people who really talk and walk like genuine Christians. Listen again to what some of these people were doing with their lives as they go before God's judgment. In verse 22, they say this, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? Now, you, when you read some of the things that these people were doing and some of the extravagant ministries that they were a part of, you can't help but to think, man, surely... If there is a group of people who really know God, who really have a connection to God, it has to be these people. Because look at the things that they're doing. Look at the ministries that they're doing. Look how successful they are in the church and the ministries that they're a part of. Surely God would never use people like this in such a way that, that these people are being used, and yet they don't know him, right? Wrong. Wrong. Because according to Jesus, it is possible to be part of a ministry and be very successful at it, and yet not know God at all. Let me say that again. According to Jesus, it is possible to be part of an incredible ministry to where you're doing great works in the name of Jesus, but you do not know Jesus at all. How in the world do you explain that? The only explanation is that these ministries, as great as they are, as important as they are, as amazing as they are, are not the most important or the most significant ministry there is. No, there is another ministry that takes greater precedence, that takes greater priority to where if you neglect this ministry, whatever ministries that you do for God are irrelevant. If you neglect this particular ministry, this personal ministry to God, but you do all these other great ministries to God, God would say, I don't care. It's irrelevant. You don't know me. And we can easily figure out 
what this ministry is when we look at the way God describes these people in verse 23. What does he say about them? He calls them what? I don't know you what? You workers of lawlessness. You workers of lawlessness. What is Jesus saying about these people who claim to know God when in fact they don't? What does he say about them? He's saying that you are workers of lawlessness, which means what? They don't obey God's law. They are disobedient people. They are not people who obey God, right? That's what he's saying. And that right there, my friends, is this first and foremost ministries that we have to God. This is our personal ministry to God, which is obeying God. Obeying God, personally obeying God, is your first priority in terms of the ministry that God has called you to serve. He calls you first not to serve your family, not to serve the church, not to serve the poor. (coughs) The first priority ministry that God calls you to do is to serve him by obeying him. That is the most important ministry that we are to do because it is only through our obeying of God that we actually come to know him. Listen to how one theologian and philosopher by the name of John Frame puts it. He says this, quote, To determine if someone knows God, we do not merely give him a written exam. We examine his life. Atheism in Scripture is a practical, not merely a theoretical position. Denying God is seen in the corruption of one's life. Similarly, the test of Christian faith or knowledge is a holy life. The ultimate reason for that is that God is the real, living, and true God, not an abstraction concerning whom we can only theorize but one who is profoundly involved with each of our lives. Thus, our involvement with him is a practical involvement, an involvement with him not only in our theoretical activity, but in all of life. To disobey is to be culpably ignorant of God's involvement in our lives. So disobedience involves ignorance, and obedience involves knowledge. Here's what he's saying. When you obey God, that is evidence that you actually know him. When you disobey God, that is evidence that you do not know. But it doesn't matter if you preach great sermons. It doesn't matter if you're an amazing Bible study leader. It doesn't matter if you're serving the poor. It doesn't matter if you're an advocate for the poor and changing social injustices in the world. If you are not obeying God personally, if you're not living a life of holiness, you do not know God in spite of what other involvement in other ministries may say. That is what Jesus is saying. If you don't obey him, you don't know him. And if you don't know him, you do not have a personal ministry to God. Now, it's at this point, some of you might be wondering something. Why is God so caught up with this idea of obeying him? I mean, if you compare some of these other ministries that he calls us to do, you know, caring for the poor, caring for the homeless, raising a godly family, caring for the church, helping other members get out of addiction, you know, do counseling and restore marriages. These are important things. These are amazing ministries. So why would God say that even if you do those things but you neglect this, those things are irrelevant? How can God prioritize our obedience to him to such a high level to where that takes precedent over everything else? That's a great question, which leads me to my next point. Why personal ministry to God is so important to him. Let's read again verse 22 of our passage where it says this. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Now, I want you to notice something. Notice how these people are referring to themselves as they're listing out all the great ministries that they've done. How do they refer to themselves? They refer to themselves what? 
in the plural, right? Personal pronoun plural, right? We, no, first person plural, right? First person plural, we, right? We. I made that mistake in another sermon, and Sarah told me, no, it's first person plural. They refer to themselves in the plural, right? To where instead of saying, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? They say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Why do they refer to themselves in the plural as the we and not as the individual, as the I? And the reason why I bring this up is because whenever you study the Bible, specifically those passages where it tells us that God is judging us, like on the day of judgment, it's always in the context of God judging us as individuals, not as part of a collective, but always as an individual. Let me read you some passages of scripture so I can prove this to you. Jeremiah 17, starting in verse 10, right, reads this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give, what, every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. Then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. Notice how these passages, which are describing God's judging over us, is always in the context at the individual level, at the singular level, at the level of the I, not at the level of the we, which means on the day of judgment, what is God going to do? He's not going to call out groups of people to stand before him in the throne of judgment. No, he's going to call out your individual personal name to stand right before him alone as an individual to stand before him so that you could be scrutinized in minute detail within your individual life. So with that in mind, the question is, why are these individuals who are presumably standing alone before God's judgment seat, why are they referring to themselves in the first person plural? Why are they referring to themselves as we? Well, let me see if this illustration could help. If you work for a big company here in the city, major, maybe a major Fortune 500 company, to where you are just one of thousands, tens of thousands of employees, you are not going to assume that the CEO of your company personally knows you, right? You're not going to make that kind of an assumption. Why? Because for all intents and purposes, your CEO just doesn't care about you as an individual. He doesn't care about you as an I. No, the only context to which he cares about you is in the context as a member of the corporation, as you being part of the we, right? That is the only context that he cares about as far as you are concerned. And the only time the CEO will care about you as an individual is when you do one of two things. Either you screw up so badly to where you become a liability to the company, to where you are a threat to the we, or you are such an amazing employee that you bring profound benefits and become a major asset to the company to where you promote the we. It's all about the we. It's never about the I. It's all about the collective, never about the individual, right? In other words, you have no inherent individual value on your own, on your own terms, in the eyes of the CEO. He only cares about you in light of the contribution that you make to part of this collective known as the we, right? And in essence, that is what these people who are being judged by God assume of God by referring to themselves as we. In essence, by calling themselves in the first person plural, what they're essentially saying is, God, I know on my own individual merits, on my own individual terms, I'm nothing in your sight. You could care less. I'm just one of a billion, one of a trillion. I'm just a number to you. But at least I can make 
sure that I did a contribution to this corporation that you call the kingdom of God. See, I've done my part, God. Let me list some of the things that I've done. I was part of the group that prophesied in your name. I was part of the group that, you know, exorcism and cast out demons in your name. I was part of the group that did miraculous works like healings and supernatural, other kinds of miracles. I've done my part. I fulfilled my little portion of this collective operation that you call the kingdom of God. Therefore, God, can you now receive me? Can I now be a part of your kingdom? Will you now give me value because of my contribution to the we? To which God then responds to them, I never knew you. Which according to the first point really means you don't know me. You see, God is saying to these people in judgment that they are absolutely wrong in terms of how they view him. God is not some cosmic CEO who could care less about you as an individual. No, just the opposite. God cares about you personally, individually, evidenced by the fact that he wants your personal obedience. In other words, your personal obedience is important to him because you are personally important to him. Listen to what James Boyce, a great pastor down in Philadelphia, says about this. He says this, quote, Following the Lord Jesus Christ is an individual matter. When we say that discipleship is an individual matter, we are saying that it's something that the individual himself must do. No one else can follow Jesus for you. Your wife cannot be your proxy. Your children cannot read the Bible for you, pray for you, obey the Lord for you. You must do these things yourself. What is Pastor Boy saying? He is saying that your obedience to God is unlike anyone else's obedience to God. That's why no one else can obey God for you. Because in a sense, your obedience to God is not replaceable by anyone else. That's what he's saying. You see, your individual obedience to God, by its very nature, it's personal, it's unique, it's one of a kind. No one else's obedience to God will be like your personal obedience to God. Because even though you obey the same laws as everyone else, your obedience takes on a different flavor, takes on a different unique delight that no one else's obedience will give to the Lord. Let me give you this example. Let's take one commandment of the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment. Remember what that is? Honor your father and your mother. This is a command that every individual who walks on this earth has to obey. All of us are commanded by God to honor our parents, right? But your obedience to this universal command is going to be so different so unique, so one of a kind to anyone else's obedience to that fifth commandment. Because first of all, no one else has your parents but you, right? But you're like, well, wait a minute, I have a brother and sister. They have the same parents as me, and they obey the same law. Isn't that contradicting to what you just said? No. Because even though you may share the same parents, you are different from your siblings, right? You come into this world in a different context. Maybe when you were born... Your parents were dirt poor and never got you anything. But when your sibling came into the world, your parents all of a sudden made it rich. And they started showering all these gifts on your sibling. Or maybe, quite honestly, you're not the favorite one. And your sibling is the favorite one. And they get all this love, all this attention, while you, you just kind of stand off to the side. Even with the same parents, you don't get the same treatment. You don't have the same challenges and the same difficulties that even your siblings have to face being raised in the same home. Our obedience to the universal law will manifest in light of the specific struggles, specific issues, specific insecurities and trials and temptations that we have to carry. No one else. You see, your obedience to God 
is unlike anyone else's obedience to God. The point is, everyone has to obey God, but not everyone's obedience is the same. What does this tell us? It tells us no one can obey the Lord the way you can obey the Lord. Your obedience is unique. It's one of a kind, which means God takes great delight in your obedience to him that he does not take delight in anyone else's, but vice versa. He takes delight in someone else's obedience to him in a way that is different to yours. This is why our personal ministry of obedience is so important to God. Why it's so precious? Because you are uniquely, individually precious to him. So with all that said, we're left with the question. How do we offer our obedience to God? And this leads me to my final point. How we can have this personal ministry to God. Let's read again verse 21 of our passage. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven according to Jesus, the only way that you can be equipped to offer this personal ministry, this personal obedience to the Lord, requires one thing. You must do the will of the Father. What in the world does that mean? That's such a vague, generic phrase, right? You must do the will of the Father. Well, Jesus, what is the will of the Father? Well, he doesn't tell us here in this passage, but he tells us in another passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 40. Let's read it. Jesus says, For it is my Father's will... That all who see his son and believe in him should have eternal life. That I will raise them up at the last day. According to Jesus here in John 6, the Father's will is for you to see Jesus in such a way that you believe in him. You have to believe something specific about Jesus so that you could be inspired to personally obey and do this personal ministry of obeying God. But then we have to dig a little deeper. What does that mean? What do we specifically have to believe about Jesus so that we could have this personal ministry. Let's go to John 3.16. Very standard classic text. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That word whoever is a singular participle. A lot of grammar today. Singular participle, right? What is that saying? Whoever believes basically means whichever singular individual believes in him will have eternal life. That's what it's saying. What is Jesus teaching us here? He's telling us, if you really want to have this personal ministry to God, where you personally obey him, you first have to believe that he personally and uniquely loves you to the point where he personally and uniquely died for you on the cross. So that whoever believes in me will have eternal life. In other words, God the Father revealed his incredible, unique love for me, individual, by sending his eternal son to become a man as Jesus, to be my savior. Which means he came to suffer the penalty of my sins by dying on the cross as my substitute so that I could be forgiven of my sins. That's the gospel. You know, it is true, Jesus died for the church. But don't let that eclipse the fact that he died for singular you. You got to remember that God loves you not with this vague, generic love. He loves you with a particular, unique, distinguished love in a way that he does not love any of his other children. Which means what? It means it gives you such an impetus desire to personally know him, 
to personally minister to him, to respond in his personal love for you by personally obeying him. Obedience always springs forth from God's love for you. Let me say that again. Your obedience always springs forth from your confidence that God loves you. G.C. Perkauer, a great theologian, says this, For love is the only meaning of the law. Therefore, obedience to the law can only be an echo or response to God's love. If you want to offer this personal ministry to the Lord, you have to be persuaded, you have to be convinced that God loves you with a unique and specific love. The reason why I'm kind of laughing is because I'm thinking of an illustration right now. I don't know if I should do it, but, you know, sometimes I make the mistake of calling uh, Kara my third daughter's name, my third child's name. And sometimes I even call Judah, our, our son, one of the girls' name. And I know that if I keep doing that, I'm going to really mess them up because they're going to think, do you not know who I am? You know, how can you confuse me with somebody else? And, and I, I know that they could be tempted to think that daddy just loves them, you know, generically. You know, it's, it's not a specific love. And therefore, you know, they're going to feel so competitive. Like who can get more of this gen- generic love from daddy, you know? But if they know that daddy loves each of them the same but differently, they're confident. There's no competitiveness. There's no angst to try and outdo one another to garner my affections. You know, people have the audacity to ask me, PJ, which of your three are your favorite kids, you know? And I always say, I love them all equally, but I love them differently, right? And that's how God loves us. You have to be persuaded that the love of God is not this generic, nebulous, you know, love that is just, you know. Because if you do, then it's every man for himself, right? You're going to start thinking that in the church that you're going to have to be more obedient to God and you develop such a legalistic spirit or, or you try to outdo one another in the way that you live your life in ministry. No. The love of God is unique to where your obedience counts for something in a way that will not count for anybody else. What joy, what delight that gives you to where you no longer have to think that you are competing for any other Christian for the Father's love. The Father's love is secure and is secure for you and for you alone. Take it because of what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that as we continue to journey together in this community of faith that we don't be tempted to think that we are just part of this collective where our individuality is smothered and forgotten. Father, you call us to be part of the church, but you also call us each by name. And Father, we know that our obedience matters to you, that our obedience is delightful to you. And Father, what an encouragement it is to know that what we offer to you is something that is precious between me and you, them and you individually so that it gives us such security to be a blessing towards one another without envy, without a spirit of covetousness so instead we could be fixated on serving each other in genuine love. Father, I pray that all the saints that are gathered here this morning would really take this message to heart so that as they serve, there would be no underlying doubt or fear but instead there would be boldness and confidence to serve valiantly and faithfully because of the Father's love that is manifested to us uniquely in such a way that we can therefore give back to you through our own personal obedience. Help us to be a holy people 
made up of holy individuals so that we could truly fulfill these ministries you call us to do for the good of this world. Help us to do that now, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're now going to give the Lord his tithes on our offering. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give, but to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.